a privilege and an honor to get to preach to you this this cold morning. I'm so glad to see you all. You braved the elements and the weather. This morning my sermon is in, if you want to turn with me to John 4, that's where we'll be today. John chapter 4. We'll be walking pretty much through the entire chapter, uh, but I will uh, kind of take it piece by piece. I'll, we'll, we'll go together, if you will. We'll, we'll journey through this text uh, one step at a, at a time, uh, if you will. My sermon title this morning is Savior of the World. Now, last week, Matt said that his title was a angry youth pastor title. Fake uh, t- title. It's fake Christianity, so it's angry youth pastor term, uh, title for a sermon. So this week, I decided to title my sermon more of a jovial lead pastor title, right? It kind of sounds like a Christmas sermon, even. It's kind of happy and joyous, and so I thought that might be appropriate uh, in that sense. So if you were with me in John chapter 4, we're going to start in the first verse. Uh, So if you will, please stand with me for the reading of the word. For we know the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Hear the reading of the word, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that is John the Baptist, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the scripture. I I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. We pray, Father, that you illuminate your meaning and the importance of this text. And I pray that, Father, today it is your words and your message that is preached, not mine or anyone else's we love you we ask this all in your most holy and precious name amen you may be seated before i get going i I wanted to say thank you to you all for allowing me to be not only here this morning but having to be allowed here for this past year uh my next sunday or i guess next monday really but next sunday will be one year of being at first baptist church uh and it is just such a, a an honor and a privilege and a blessing so i you know, I, I wanted to get right into the text, but I wanted to take this opportunity while I have all of your attention just to say thank you. Thank you for loving me and my wife, Alicia. Thank you for uh, calling us here, and then thank you for just welcoming us to part of this family so quickly. We, we feel like we've been here more than a year because we just didn't have enjoyed it so much. So, like I said, my text this morning is titled Savior of the World. We are going to look at Jesus and his role in this passage i think it was very poignant and very uh per- that song nathan you picked fits perfectly with what we are looking at here this desire and longing we have for jesus and what jesus does in the midst of that longing okay now we just got past christmas uh, i hope you all had a wonderful christmas a merry christmas um, now i had i scored a few points this christmas i got my wife the greatest gift i've ever get, gotten her i did I really did. I promise you. She's not. I, mean, I know you're thinking, Cole. Exactly, you would say that when she has kids ministry, you know. But no, really, you can ask her after church. She would agree with you. This is hands down the greatest. I've gotten her jewelry. 
trips, things, all the stuff, you know, sentimental, fun stuff, all the gifts. I mean, not that many. We've only been married for three years. But I've gotten some things, you know. I've tried. Been a good husband. She considers all those loss. As Paul would say, they're rubbish. Because this year, I got her a subscription to the Hallmark Movie Streaming Channel. Oh, yeah. And you know what I did? I didn't just give it to her Christmas Day. I got it to her December 1st so she can watch these movies all year round. And all the Christmas movies all December. Oh, she loved it. I was, oh, man, it was great. I'll have to live up to that next year. But we both love these movies, vastly different reasons, I will say. She loves them for the the happy ending. I mean, I'm seeing some nodding of heads. It's it's sweet. You know what's going to happen. It's going to be a happy ending. No matter what happens, they're, they're True love's going to win out. I love them because I like to make fun of them. <laughs> I love to pick fun. My favorite thing to make fun of, though, is the character of the leading man. You know who I'm talking about? You'll know him because he's the character with only two characteristics. He has a, a jawline, and he has a job. That's who he is. His only purpose is to love and to marry the leading lady. She has a job, and she has purposes, and she has agency and drive and all these characteristics but he is there only for her his one desire is for her and i started thinking this christmas you know this this idea because i've watched hundreds of these movies at this point you know that description lasts all year did you know that i didn't know that this prince charming modern day prince charming we see in the hallmark movies is a trope that we're all very familiar with, right? The Prince Charming, the leading man, and he has this role. And I was reading and and meditating on John chapter 4, and we see that John presents Jesus here as the leading man, but very, very differently. He's, from the very beginning, he is an inversion of this Prince Charming trope. Where Prince Charming comes to save this beautiful princess, or the leading man is, is only purpose is to help the leading lady, you know, discover the true meaning of Christmas at their family Christmas tree farm or something. Jesus' desires are different. In fact, he challenges the traditional tropes, and he challenges even our understanding of what he's here for. So this morning, I would like to highlight to you three things that I think John is pointing out about Christ as a leading male figure. So that we may have a better understanding of Jesus and his role in not just this chapter, but in the whole of Scripture. So, as we see, Jesus has been walking from Jerusalem into, I'm sorry, from Judea to Galilee. And it says he has to stop and go through Samaria, right? So, main character, Jesus, he's right there. I mean, spoiler alert, Jesus is the main character of the majority of Scripture, all of Scripture. He is the main character. So, if we have this idea, and you're probably sitting there thinking, okay, Cole, what are you doing with this? We have Jesus as a Prince Charming. Jesus is a, a leading figure, like a Hallmark movie. Does that mean this is a love story? Do, do we have, as John presenting to us, a love story? Yes. He is, kind of, but not really. At least he's starting it out as a love story. 
He's using this story and these tropes, just like we have, to highlight specific desires that the, the Son of Man, the Savior of the world, the, that Jesus has. The first desire I want to point out to you is that Jesus desires to fulfill the longings of the lost. So how is this a love story? How does this make sense? Well, from 21st century American eyes, maybe we, this doesn't seem like a love story. This doesn't fit necessarily our tropes, but just like we have these tropes that we're so used to, ancient Hebraic literature does, in fact, have similar tropes that are different than ours, but for a, the original Jewish reader would have sprung in their mind an immediate picture of a love story, probably on the levels of the most cliche Hallmark movie you've ever seen. Here's what I'm talking about. In the Old Testament, there's a common story of how a biblical figure, a biblical leading man, finds their wife. We see it with Isaac, we see it with Jacob, and we even see it with Moses. Here's what happens. The man travels to a foreign country, comes to a well, meets a woman. One of them draws water. Then the woman goes back to her family. They invite the man to stay, and then they are joined in marriage. So for the Jewish reader, they're going to see these patterns and think, oh, I know what's about to happen. It's just like if we're watching a Hallmark movie and the busy businesswoman runs out of gas right in front of a, a Hallmark, right outside of a Christmas tree farm. What do we expect to happen? Who's going to help her? It's not going to be Gus or random dude down the street. No, it's going to be the love of her life, right? Come in with the rugged good looks and a can of gas, right? We say, oh, we know what's about to happen. I know this story. So for Jesus to travel into a foreign country and then sit at a well, a Jewish reader goes, oh, okay. I know what's about to happen. I got it. I see what you're doing here, John. Jesus is going to meet his wife. But then something different happens. It says a woman, okay, He's going to meet his wife. Of Sam- from Samaria came to draw water. Now immediately you think, no, 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 something's wrong. Can't be a Samaritan woman. You see, as John points out later in this passage, when Jesus asks her, give me a drink, and the Samaritan woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for drink, a drink of water? A woman of Samaria, and John points out here that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is a long-standing hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Not only were Jews considered to be traitors to the religious faith because they intermarried with pagans back when Babylonian exile was going on, but in fact they actually aligned themselves with at this time with Rome. They were not only traitors to the religious faith, the Jewish faith, they were traitors to the Jewish nation. They were unclean, undesired, unwanted, and hated by all Jews. Jews, it says they had no dealings with them. That means they didn't even share meals. They wouldn't share a cup. They were unclean people. You don't go to Samaria. In fact, it's even interesting that Jesus would go through Samaria. Most Jews would circumvent Samaria, take a longer passage, a harder passage, just to avoid Samaria. So at this point, a Jewish reader reading that Jesus is speaking with this woman, again, another baffling aspect where a Jewish rabbi would never speak to a woman in public at this time and day and age. He wouldn't even speak to his wife in public. 
Because what would people say? It's, it's, it's too scandalous. A rabbi does not speak to a woman, especially a stranger, especially a Samaritan woman. So a Jewish reader here would be thinking, what is going on? This is not right. This cannot be Jesus. What is John doing? What is Jesus doing? What could he ever want with this woman? And in fact, I think that's exactly the question John wants us to ask. What could Jesus want with this woman? What could he desire here? In fact, Jesus answers it for us very quickly. He says, he answers, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. We see that Jesus here, what his desire for this woman is not to find his bride, not to fall in love, but instead what Jesus is doing here is that he is desiring to provide to this woman eternal life. The gift of the Spirit. Elsewhere in John, later in John, he speaks in a similar ways about living water. He says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe uh, in him were to receive. When Jesus speaks of living water, he's talking about the indwelling of the coming Spirit. Meaning, a relationship with Christ and a relationship with the Father. He's offering this woman not just to meet her physical needs, because we all know that this woman will be thirsty again. She will have to come back and get physical water. She will have to drink. But Jesus is offering to meet, just like we sang earlier, the deep, innermost longings of her soul. The, the longing for eternal life that has been there since the garden, at the fall of man when Adam and Eve broke God's covenant and were cast out of the garden. The longing to return to the Father that is in each and every one of us. Christ desires to fulfill that longing. It is not begrudging that he brings us salvation. It is not against his will to bring us salvation. In fact, it is his deepest desire to bring us salvation. That's why he broke every social code. That's why he even sat down. That's why he came to Samaria for this woman's salvation. How often do we, like her, go to wells to fulfill our longings and are left yet again thirsty? We're left yet again desiring to be filled. Not that these things like jobs or money or relationships, not, not that those things are bad per se, just that they're inferior. They're incapable of satisfying our desires and our longings. Only Christ and his Salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection can actually fulfill within us that longing for a relationship with the Father. Through no other means, through no other things, can we find rest from our longings. And that is exactly why Jesus is here. That's exactly why he came, is to fulfill those longings. 
Secondly, we see another desire of Jesus with this interaction with his woman. He desires the undesired. The undesired. We see that Jesus, and you may be familiar with this passage, because it's fairly common, but he says, go and call your husband to come here. After she asks him for this water, he says, go and call your husband. She says to him, well, I have no husband. He says, for you, he says, you are right to say, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. At least she's telling the truth. At least she's honest, right? I would probably say that this woman, definitely in her community, but possibly in the book of John, is one of the most undesirable characters we could come in contact with. Definitely in her community. I, w- I want you to understand this woman exactly what she's experienced and gone through. This woman has gone through five marriages. Now, in this day and age, she can't issue a divorce. She hasn't dismissed five men. She isn't bouncing between husband to husband, maybe trying to get money or something. No, she has been left five times, possibly widowed five times, or maybe a combination of the, of the two. Five times she has tried to find someone to take care of her, to love her, to provide for her. Because remember, in this day and age, too, women couldn't hold jobs. They couldn't even own land. They couldn't even uh, uh, manage their own money or their own uh, possessions. They, they needed a husband or a father. And if this woman had no father at this time, she needed a husband in this day and age. So she's gone to five different people to help her, and five different times she's been cast aside, rejected, told that she's unwanted. Divorces back then were very easy. Simply no longer desiring your wife or no longer thinking she was good company or for her burning the toast or some case, you could divorce her legally. This was the reality this woman had to live in. And now she's left with no options. Can you, can you imagine what she may be feeling? She is left with no other options after this fifth husband has left her alone. And now her only choice is to provide for herself, to have some kind of stability for her and possibly even her children, is to live with someone who is not her husband, possibly or meaning someone else's husband. At best, she's a servant living in a household. At worst, she's living as a concubine. In this day and age, we can't even imagine the feelings she would be experiencing. But Jesus is not harsh with her. He is not dismissive of her. He does not run from her and leave her alone like everyone else in this village. No, he is patient with her. In fact, when he says all these things and touches this wound in her heart, she does what many of us would probably do. She changes the subject very quickly. She says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, meaning the Jews, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Don't miss the significance of what Jesus is doing here. He is revealing to this woman everything He is about to accomplish. She's bringing up this old, old theological argument between Jews and Samaritans of where you physically worship. But he says, don't, don't worry about that anymore. You are so concerned about where you're going to go to meet God. But what Jesus is telling her right now is that God desires you to the point where he doesn't want you to find him, but he has found you. And in fact, he is sitting at this well with you this very moment. Jesus has revealed to her the plans of salvation and the coming and dwelling of the Spirit and the relationship we will have with the Father. But she's still untrusting. I mean, can you blame her? Five husbands who have abandoned her and now yet here's another man who's telling her that he can answer all her problems and fix all her longings and she's like, sure, sure you can. You know what? I'm going to wait for the Messiah. She says, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. You know what? I'm done with this conversation. I'm, the Messiah will be here one day and he can answer all my problems. I'm sure he can fix my problems. But not you. Who can blame her? All that she's been through. But Jesus doesn't leave it at that. Jesus' desire for this undesired woman goes to the point where he doesn't just reveal to her what he is going to do, but he reveals to her for the first time in John. That is not insignificant. John waits to show that this is the first time that the incarnate Son reveals his divinity to someone. Jesus said to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I am this Messiah. The first person Jesus shows his divinity to is not some elected official, not Caesar, not some powerful influencer, but this rejected woman from Samaria. Someone who has been declared unclean by the Jews, thought of as unwanted in her own society, and more than likely, I'm assuming here, but more than likely believes to be undeserving within her own heart. I think we can all relate to that to some degree to feel that I can't I can't be deserving of God's love that whisper in our heart in our ear in our hearts that we we're not good enough we're too sinful whether we know him or not whether we're in salvation or not we, we all feel that desire to, or that, that 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 false truth that Satan whispers in our ear that we aren't good enough that we can't fulfill what Christ has for us he, we can't deserve his love and I'm actually here to tell you, yeah, we don't deserve it. We aren't worthy. We are sinful. Our sin is too great to restore our relationship to the Father. And that's exactly who Christ desires. That's exactly who he came for. That's exactly why he died on the cross for our sins, to make a way for us despite our sin and our unworthiness. He did it for us. He lived the life we couldn't live and died the death that we deserved. This is his desire to save the, unwa- the undeserved and the undesired. 
And the third desire, we see that he desires to love, the, uh, the, to fulfill the longings of the lost and to, he desires the undesired. But thirdly, he desires to share his joy. To share his joy. Read with me in verse 31. The woman, after hearing Jesus, runs back to her village and leaves her watering uh, jar leaves it behind and runs into her village and says come see this man is he could he be the messiah she has accepted and i i, I want to point this out too it's interesting that john says she leaves the watering jar behind isn't it interesting that after accepting and drinking full of the living water she is no longer interested in her earthly water but read with me in verse 31 meanwhile the disciples after they came back with their food they were urging him saying rabbi eat but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to another, has anyone brought him something? I'll tell you one thing. Walking for a long time will make you very hungry. I don't know if you've gone on a long hike or a trek, but only if you go a few miles and you're grabbing for that granola bar, right? You get hungry. Jesus has probably gone tens and tens of miles, probably even 30 miles over the past day and a half. Surely, and the disciples buying food means they didn't have any food, so surely he was hungry. But he says, no, I have food that you don't know about. My food is to, this verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving his rages and gathering food, fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus could, or Jesus obviously is overwhelmed and overjoyed at the decision of this woman. He describes it not as a, just a granola bar to eat. He describes it not as some... You know, like those ramen meals I ate every day in college to feed myself. He's describing a meal that fills not only the stomach, but the heart. You know those meals. Your grandmother's, your favorite meal from your grandmother, your favorite meal from your childhood. For me, it was chicken dumplings. Loved it. The meal that you rejoice in. The meal that you are sit back and are amazed at. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the satisfaction he receives from, from bringing uh, living water to the lost and he had every right to say to say to the disciples you know what why don't y'all go hang out on the sideline i'm going to take care of the rest of the village no he invites them to the harvest he invites them to this meal and i'll tell you what he is inviting us as well church i promise you the the fields are still white with the harvest there are still those who are longing longing for a taste of living water who need to know Jesus as their Savior and Jesus is inviting us to partake in this feast will we join him will we take the advantage of this opportunity to share the gospel to tell people about Jesus yes it will be difficult harvesting is hard Jesus promises to be with us and he invites us to enjoy and join in the celebration of the salvation of the lost. To tell our friends and family about Jesus and our relationship with him. To do exactly what Christ did. The will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? 
but to reveal the Son of God to the lost and to point them back to salvation, to point them to Jesus. Now, as I close, you may want to talk more about what it is like or what do you need to do or, or how do we share the gospel. There's a lot to it. It's not, I agree, it's not as easy as standing up here in the pulpit and saying, go do it. I would love to talk to you about that. I would love to talk to you about what it means to share in the rejoicing meal of salvation and evangelism. I would also love to talk to you if, you like to, if you're looking for a church home. I'd be happy to come. We would rejoice in that conversation. But maybe this morning, here or watching at home, very possibly, you may not know Christ. You may be like this village who has never heard of Jesus. Or maybe like this woman you are struggling with the longing in your heart for Jesus, for eternal life. I want to encourage you that you, this today, where you are, can know the Lord. After the Samaritans come back and want to hear from Jesus, they invite him to stay a few days. Remember that, that paradigm, that, that, pass, that uh, love story pattern we see. They invite him to stay a few days and they tell the woman, after many days of meeting and learning from Jesus, they say, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Simple belief. Believing in who Jesus is. Accepting that he is the answer to the longings of our soul. That is the salvation message today. To know that he is the Savior of the world.